2 Samuel 12 is the story of David after he has fallen with Bathsheba. The tragedy of a man of God who has fallen into sin and the great reminder of the devastation and danger that sin brings. And I believe that you who are sitting here can look back briefly on your own lives and see problems that have come in your life because sin was too quick for you. Your heart overcame you. You did not put off the old man and put on the new man. And now, even now, you have problems in your life and you think, why am I still trapped in that? Why am I still in that? And the devastating consequences of sin still live on. They are here for David. In chapter 11, we saw over a dozen unique sins. From hypocrisy to leading others to sin. And we didn't even count the sins of omission, the things that he did not do. Only the things that he did do. But tonight we have more to understand, building off of this morning's study on biblical rebuke. That would have been an important message, that, that was an important message, and I hope you go back and study those first 14 verses to see what the Bible teaches about rebuke. But this evening we have a theology of sin. One of the remarkable evidences that the Bible is inspired is that if you take any single theme and follow it consistently through the Bible, it produces an interlocking web with no contradictions. In fact, the Puritan Ralph Venning in 1669 wrote a book on sin, 345 pages in my edition, And what's remarkable on his book on sin is that it covers the deity of Christ. It covers substitutionary atonement. It even covers a discussion of how to pray. Because if you follow one theme of the Bible consistently, you're going to find an entire body of truth. We see that tonight with David. It is remarkable that if you look at David's life, The stories that were curated are all planned to do just that. To give us a full understanding of God's view of the world. You can read, if you would prefer, the book of Proverbs. David's son from Bathsheba, who's going to be mentioned in verse 24 tonight. Or, you can read David's life. 58 chapters. 79 psalms for sure. Maybe more. There's a large body of material. And the Holy Spirit gathered that material so that you and I would understand a Christian perspective on all things in life. And here it is for us tonight. Sin. A theological lesson Of sin. And we're going to specifically see unintended consequences. He did not have any power to control what would happen after he made those wicked choices. 
They were out of his control. And he did not realize that would happen. If he had known the price, he would not have made the purchase. If, if we had known what kind of man that man was, we wouldn't have voted for him. If she had known the kind of character that that boy had, she never would have said yes to marry him. If the pastor had known what kind of man he was, he would have been a little more careful before accepting him to membership. Or allowing him positions of authority in the church. It reminds me that one careless match can burn down the house. Or General Stonewall Jackson, a great American general, was shot and killed at the height of the war between the states by a bullet from his own men. And if he could have taken it back, that guard would have done it. And he had no choice. It was gone now. The bullet flew. The trigger was pulled. Somewhere in his 50s, this man, David, is beginning to feel his age. He's going to die when he's about 70 years old. After he fell to the temptation of lust and it spiraled, I could say snowball, but you wouldn't know what I'm talking about. Rolling down the hill until it gets bigger and bigger. That's what happened in chapter 11 for those nine months when David was consumed with guilt. We know that because he writes about it in the Psalms. Then Nathan rebukes him after the child is born. Remarkably, in chapter 12, verse 13, it says that David's sin is removed. It's taken away. It's put off. But two results are not put off. One of them is negative and one of them is positive. And just like the gospel, the negative comes first and the positive comes at the end. And the negative has about nine verses and the positive gets two. And I'd like us tonight to study the unintended consequences of sin. There are two of them. I'm, I'm going to see if you can figure them out. The first one is in verse 15 down to verse 23. And the second one is the last two verses Verse 24 and 25. Two unintended consequences of sin. They will come to your life if you are not wise. If you are not praying in the Holy Spirit. If you are not practicing the discipline of fasting. If you are not near to Christ. If you are not abiding in the vine. Expect this. First of all, verses 15 to 23. Notice verse 15. And Nathan departed to his own house. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare to David. And it was very sick. Notice that the Lord, Jehovah, struck the child. There's a taxi or a bucky in Elam that says God never kills. He needs to read this verse. God is in control and he does whatever he pleases. Verse 15 shows that he struck the child as a consequence of sin. And notice that it says Uriah's wife bore this child to David. 
reminding us again that that child died in connection with adultery. But that is a very hard fact of the story. Let me ask you, who sinned? The baby or the parents? Tell me. Who died? Ezekiel 18 is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible on the doctrine of personal responsibility. There are three scenarios in that chapter, but it opens with a summary statement in verse 4. It says, the soul that sins will die. It happens at the very end of the chapter as well. And what happens is Ezekiel says, let's suppose there's a man and he's righteous. He will live. But let's suppose that his son is wicked. Then regardless of the righteousness of the father, the son will die. Third example, what if there's a third child, that uh, second child, a third generation, a son of the wicked man, and he is righteous. He's on to say that he will live. And verse 20 says this, the person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity. Nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. And that's our problem. Do you see the difficulty right there? Are you paying attention? The son will not die for the father. And if the father sins, and, and if the son sins, the father won't die on his behalf. But don't we have an example of a contradiction then? This child died. To show the parents the evil of their sin. This child did not die to bear the guilt of the parents' sin. This is all through the Bible and all through life. Can you think of any people who died because of someone else's sin? We just studied him a few weeks ago. You want to go ahead. Let's talk tonight. Keep awake here. Go ahead. Just one. Just one. Go ahead. Hitler sinned. Many people died. Takato? Okay, Jesus didn't sin, and yet he died. It was our sins that put him on the cross. Colin? Yeah, you just say every war. Jonathan died for Saul's sin. When Saul goes to see the witch at Endor, the, the spirit of Samuel says, because of your sin, you will die tomorrow and your sons. A man named Naboth dies because of Ahab's sin. Uriah died because of David's sin. And as has already been hinted by our historical examples, every murder in history is an example of the same principle. Now, I'm not saying that the person who was murdered was innocent. I'm saying that the person who was murdered did not deserve to be murdered or else it wouldn't be murder. It would be just ex- execution. 
If the person was actually murdered, then they are an example of this principle that we see with the baby. There's no contradiction here, and honestly, it's not even that difficult. I'm bringing this up because I'm in a discussion group with some Muslims, and Abu Bakr brought this up as an example of a contradiction in the Bible. There may be some difficulties, but this is not one of them. Why do people get sick and die? Why do babies get sick and die? There's three reasons that people suffer. Number one, they die or suffer for personal guilt. Because they have sinned. Think of all the people in the flood. Noah's flood of Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. Number two, they die as an innocent consequence. Because someone near them sinned. Think of Abel who died because Cain got angry. Number three, a spiritual test. Can you think of anyone who was tested by God and so pain came and people even died? Who was it? Job. The effects of sin on those around us should cause us to hate our sin. Look at verse 16. David therefore begged God for the child. He prayed to God for the child. And he fasted and went in and lay all night on the earth. David saw what happened to the baby and it suddenly became crystal clear. He saw perfectly clear. He said, no, what has happened? I should have seen more clearly. The child is dying and it's my fault. When we see the effects of our sin, it should make us hate our sin. Or as the ancient Greeks would say, it should build up our chests. It should teach us the right thing to hate. Jesus in Hebrews 1 is said, God anointed you above all the, all the others because you loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Why in Hebrews 1 did God anoint his son? Anoint just means it's from the same root as Christ. Why was Jesus chosen as the Christ? Hebrews 1, because he had the right kind of heart. He loved the right thing and he hated the right thing. And if we mix those up, we have really failed in our own personal discipleship or the education of our children. The death of the baby brought horror, brought the horror of sin to David. And so David could not be comforted Did you notice in verse 16? What does he do in verse 16? He prays. He fasts. What else does he do in verse 16? He discomforts himself. He takes away the comfort of rest. Look, what does he do in verse 17? He resists comfort. Verse 17. The elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth. But he would not. He would not eat bread with them. Don't give me any comfort. It was during this time that he wrote Psalm 51. And possibly two other psalms. Psalm 32 and maybe Psalm 38. Now to write Hebrew poetry is a very taxing job. Hebrew poetry does not rhyme the words. (coughs) Hebrew poetry instead rhymes the ideas or contrasts the ideas. So you have a line and then the next line will contrast with it. 
David wrote a lengthy Hebrew poem to express his grief over his sin in Psalm 51. And then again in Psalm 32. And then again in Psalm 38. My point is this. He's devoting himself. He will not leave that place too quickly. It is dangerous to leave off repentance and weeping too early. Richard Baxter said, The best of men are prone to do too little. Even the best of us, we should be repenting to this degree, but instead we repent to this degree. We take five minutes for confession when we should have taken an hour. We took ten minutes for introspection when it should have been a day. You may not know this wonderful author, but you need to know. Can I say the greatest female author ever? Jane Austen. Writing in the book Pride and Prejudice. When she comes to a point where the father of five daughters is brokenhearted because his youngest daughter has irreparably damaged the family's reputation and thrown herself away on a wicked man. The eldest daughter comes in to comfort the dad. Dad is in his study and he's, he's mourning. And the eldest daughter comes in and says, it's okay, remember you tried, you tried. And the father says, let me alone, Lizzie. It will pass far too quickly, more quickly than it should. We need to remember that. The problem is, weeping is hard. So if we ever weep, we weep for that long when we should have wept for that long. What king was it in 2 Kings? We're going to get to him. Is it Jeroboam? He went to see the prophet because he, was, he had the arms all around him. And when he went to see the prophet, the prophet says, take these arrows and strike them on the ground as a symbol of what you're going to do to the enemy. And he strikes the ground and strikes it again. And the prophet says, what are you doing? You should have struck it over and over. You should have had some zeal and some vehemence. You should have given your whole soul to this. And because you didn't, they are going to continue to be a thorn in your side. How many of us, when the Bible says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We think that a brief prayer will fit. David is a good example. Verse 19. The baby dies because of the parent's sin. In verse 20, look at David's response. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house and when he required, they set bread before him and he ate. What did he do before he ate? What did he do first? He worshipped. David did not believe the prosperity gospel. He was a follower of Job's God. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Betty Hinn, years ago, said on TVN, The Lord gives and the Lord never takes away. 
Job was wrong. Benny Hinn corrects God and the Bible. David is not such a fool. David says, I'm low. I've been humbled. I've been broken over my sin. And now just let me lie low before the Lord. And so he worships God. Worship in Hebrew is to fall on your face. But it's a different word from what he had been doing up here in verse number 16. When he fell on his face to pray. Here the idea is adoration and acceptance. So when bad news came, when life changing news came, he did not say, it's not fair. David didn't believe in positive confession. He didn't speak his faith. He didn't claim his blessings. He acknowledged, I'm the sinner and you're the sovereign. Matthew 6.33, seek ye first the kingdom of God. David did that. Do you see that in verse 20? Before eating, he deals with God. You could say, but he's been dealing with God for seven days. Not enough. This is a man who has his priorities straight. This is a man who is a model of devotion because even after a fall, he returns the right way. Let me just ask you pointedly. Is your devotion even a shadow of David's? Examine your heart. Don't let these words run off you like water off a duck's back. Don't let these, this example run away just as another sermon. Don't let my, ears come, my words come in the ear and out. Ask yourself, here's David. He's the model in the Old Testament. More chapters about him than any other man, biographically speaking. Let him be our example. Look at what he does. He has his priorities straight. His devotion is set. Is that your heart as well? Look at verse 22. They asked him in verse 21, Why are you eating now? We thought you'd be weeping as a funeral. Verse 22. While the child was alive, I fasted and prayed and wept. I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me and the child will live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. We call that logic. It's a clear mind. David is rational. Brothers and sisters, God is honored when we use our minds in accordance with the laws he has given us. He is dishonored when we say, You need to stop following your mind and start following your spirit as I have heard people tell me. I don't want to dignify that theology by saying, oh, it's charismatic, as if there's a great uh, umbrella of Christianity and that's part of it. When you say follow your spirit, not your mind, that's not Christian. And it does not deserve the dignity of being protected under a Christian kind of name. David is a good example again. 
He uses his mind. He thinks clearly. The child has died. I wept that he might be healed. The child's gone now. This is the time the mother will weep. They're hurting and they're feeling the pain. I have done what was right. I prayed. I fasted. I worshipped. And now, let me get back to my duties. The world is an orderly system that works according to the laws which God created. And David shows that here. But more than that, David acknowledges that believers will see their babies again. Or at least gives us hope. I know of two verses, at least in the Bible, that help a parent or anyone who asks the question, what happens to babies who die in their infancy? This is the verse. In verse 23, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Jonah 4.11, the last verse of the book. If you just remember it that way, it's the very last verse of the book of Jonah. Jonah said, I'm sorry, God says to Jonah, why are you angry about this plant and you don't even care about all the people in the city where there are 60,000 young people, infants, children, babies, and also a lot of cows? I even care about senseless animals. And of course I care about little infants. And that gives us hope that infants are saved because even though they have original sin, they have not actual sin. Well, there are two consequences that come in this passage. The first one is what we see with the baby. Can you put it into a word? Sin brings what? Death. Death or? Pain, difficulty, hardship, discomfort. I'm not sure what happens with accidents. If Adam and Eve could trip in the Garden of Eden or drop a rock in their foot. But outside of accidents, all pain, all sickness, all hardship, all difficulty is a result of sin. Sin brings pain. If you look at the world and you are worked up at the poverty of Africa, if it hurts you to hear about child trafficking, if you hate abortion and have ever wept over that sin, if divorce has touched your home or family, if you've ever been sick or in pain with a chronic illness, and felt that ongoing pain, it's because sin came into the world. And Romans 8 says the whole creation groans, struggling under the burden of sin from which Christ will one day break us free. Pain comes from sin. It's an unintended consequence When you choose to do that wicked thing, you're not thinking to yourself, I want a hard life. I want to make my life difficult. You're not thinking that, but that's what will happen. But there's a second unintended consequence. Verse 24. And David 
comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her, and she bare a son, and he called his name Solomon. And then I think a new sentence should begin and carry into verse 25. So start the sentence here in verse 24. And the Lord loved him, and God sent Nathan the prophet to tell David. This is remarkable. Sin brought pain, but David and Bathsheba, their relationship was conceived in wickedness. What kinds of sins would have been remembered here with Bathsheba? Tell me some of them. Adultery, fornication. What's another one? Tell me. Murder. What else? There's a glaring one. It's in verse 24. David comforted Bathsheba what? His wife. He already had at least eight wives. Polygamy is a sin. Jesus takes one wife. And here we have David as a polygamist. When the law explicitly commanded kingsmen will not multiply their wives. And yet her son is chosen. Why not Abigail? Why not Ahinoam? Why not Michael? All pain and problems in the world have come from sin. But why did God allow it in the first place? You need to grapple with this. If you've never wrestled with this problem, way back before the world began, why is it that God allowed sin to come into the world? What was he, what was he doing? What was his master plan when he said, I'm going to allow sin. And if you understand these terms, Calvinist or Arminian, both sides have to deal with the same question. Calvinists believe God determines the ones that go to heaven. And so the Arminian will commonly say, then you believe that God was the author of sin. To which he can just turn back and say, do you believe that God allowed sin, Mr. John Wesley? Well, of course God allowed it. Could God have stopped Satan from sinning? Of course God could have stopped Satan from sinning. Could God have stopped Eve from eating the fruit, of course. Adam from eating the fruit, of course. Both theological perspectives have to ask and answer the question, why is sin even here? Why is pain even here? Why didn't God cut it off? And the answer is so obvious. The only reason you can't get it is because you're asked a question, and so your mind goes into, I've got to answer this. But if you just read the Bible, it's so obvious. God forbid that I should boast, except in what? The cross. Had God said no, to Satan's sin and Adam's sin. 
we would never sing about grace. No one would be named Tinsalo. No one would be named Chiridzi. No one would have those names because we wouldn't know what it is. And a manifold beauty of the Son of God and the Father and the Spirit, who is the God of grace, a manifold glory would be hidden and only adored by the Father and the Son and the Spirit. But God's whole purpose in creating the world was not for us to have big houses and nice cars. God's purpose in making the world was so that beauties that had remained hidden would be adored by humans, a choir of his own image bearers. That's the reason, and that's the reason sin had to be allowed. And sin was allowed, and it is a good thing that he allowed it. Though it is painful, and if you've ever suffered from disease or buried a loved one, you have wept, but God said... At the end, he will wipe away all tears in Revelation 21, verse 4. And when he wipes away the tears, you will see as he sees, for we will see him as he is. Isaiah tells us his thoughts are above our thoughts, but we'll be able to see a little of them. And when we get to that glorious final home, we're going to say, I was wrong. I was wrong. We'll say like Job, I put my hand on my mouth. I abhor myself. And I repent. You were right. All the suffering I went through was right. It was the best possible world. There were no worlds better than that world. Because at the end of that world, I'm singing to the praise of his glorious grace. And you would have never sung that if he had said no to Satan. And no to Adam's sin. That's why... This was allowed. And David here is showing us, David's story, the chronicler here, is showing us the shadow of the cross, the beginnings of grace, the seeds. You are a sinner. Don't distract yourself as if you're better than David. No, you're worse because your light far exceeds the light that he had. He didn't have this book. He didn't have the permanent indwelling of the Spirit. He was not united to Christ. If you're a believer, you bear all of those blessings. If you are not a believer, you have the preaching of the gospel. David never heard a gospel preaching sermon. David didn't have godly churches with believers to pray for him. But you've heard it. You are a sinner. Your sins already are round about you like an army. They will crush in on you. But look at this verse, verse 24. If he does this to polygamists, if he does this to adulterers and murderers, if he does this to, in one sense, a dirty old man, he has mercy and grace for you. Come, come, come. There are people here tonight who are not church members. There are children and adults. What are you waiting for? Brother, you're here. Listen to this sermon. Look at all of your sins. Let them terrify you. Lay down and fast and weep over your sin. And then stand up and say, but there is a God who gives mercy to people like me. 
Vanessa and Faith, I'm speaking to you. Don't wait any longer. In your soul, say, I get it. It clicks. I understand. We're bad. We're far worse than we realized. But sin brings several unintended consequences, and one of them is grace. And I'm going to cast myself, soul, mind, heart, and will, on the grace of God. He will never turn you away. John 6, verse 37. Some of you are older. You've been in church many times. Are you still outside of Christ? David gives you the pattern. All it costs is humility. A lowering of yourself. A turning over of yourself to Christ. And the deal is settled. He says, it is finished. Oh, come, come, come to Christ. See the unintended consequences of sin. And see that grace is among them. So that even when Satan comes with all of the pain of the world, God takes that and like a judo thrower, throws all of the weight on the ground and wins. Because where sin abounded, grace was even more. Father, we pray that your word would come to us with power tonight. May we go home rejoicing that you have such mercy You love the children of sinners. You love the sinners themselves. You have mercy on those who humble themselves. You did not cast away David. You did not cast away Bathsheba. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for grace. Oh, that we would hold on to it. That we would remember Paul's words to Timothy and lay hold on eternal life. Grabbing it, clutching it firmly. A terror of letting go. A peace of holding on. Oh, may God give us tonight the spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Give each one of us faith to lay hold of Christ. Oh, for the believers that are here, Father, strengthen their faith. Encourage them. May they see in God's grace an infinity of riches. May they rejoice that all their sins have been covered. May they see in David's story their own. Minister to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.